0: My name is Stephanie. I'm part of a missional community family here at Kettlebrook. And uh, usually on Sunday mornings, I get to be in the nursery with the babies in West Bend, which is a much less intimidating gig than this one. But here I am. (laughs) So thank you for your grace with me. Um, I'm excited to be here with you. Um, We're going to talk about some biblical principles for marriage. And Ryan and Carrie did an awesome job of sort of queuing up this message for us, didn't they? I am going to be speaking specifically from the perspective of wives. And so as Dan said, um, you'll be glad to know for credibility's sake that I am a wife, right? That's a good thing. Troy and I have been married for about 13 years, and we have four kids. Uh, Tiana and Chloe are our twin daughters. They're eight. We have Isaac, who's six, and Ephraim, who is five. And Ephraim is actually um, our little one that we adopted from Congo about four years ago. And so that's kind of the makeup of our family. So, about a month ago, I think, a couple of months ago, a friend of ours, a neighbor um, in our community, uh, he came up to Troy and they were talking about some different things. And he's like, Hey, have you checked out this show called This Is Us? And Troy's like, No, like, you know, we don't watch a ton of TV, kind of live under a rock as it relates to that. But um, anyway, this friend of Troy's, he's like, Well, he's like, you know, my wife and I, we started watching it, and we really like it, and every time we watch it, we think of you guys. So are like, okay. <laughs> we're getting a little nervous, you know, definitely curious, but also a little nervous. And I think like the first time we sat down to watch it, we're sort of watching it through this lens of like, what part exactly <laughs> made you think of us, you know? So, But the show, um, if you haven't seen it, it's become pretty popular um, since it's pilot, and I think I can see why. It's real, it's relatable, you know, there's a, probably an unrealistic amount of dysfunction. Um, but we can all sort of relate to some of the um, characters' experiences, some of the things that they're going through, and it's this picture of a family that's sort of going through the highs and lows of life kind of wrestling through some of the issues that have plagued them since childhood, but coming together over and over again out of love and commitment to one another. This is us. I like that. I feel like it could be sort of a family tagline, you know? You could use it if you want to. You could try that over dinner tonight. I was thinking about ours, and I thought it might be like loud, <laughs> joyful, loving, crazy, impatient, adventurous. This is us, you know? Of course, there are sort of two sides to this, I think. Um, there's Facebook, This Is Us, which um, if you can throw that first picture up there. Oh, yeah, we look good, don't we? <laughs> this is us. We've got a professional photographer. We've been on the beach a few days. So we've got that glow going for us. This is us, Facebook. Now show reality, This Is Us. There we go. <laughs> This is one of those pictures uh, where we're trying... It's the picture before the picture, you know? We're trying trying to, like, corral the troops so that we can get a picture, and I'm imagining that Troy and I are kind of, you know, yelling maybe at our kids or bribing them with cookies. Like, just smile one time. Look at the camera. (laughs) So, yeah, that's what I think is kind of appealing about this show is, like, it's not Facebook, this is us. It's reality, this is us. Like... When our son Ephraim's teacher says that they chose him to be the innkeeper at the Christmas pageant because they needed someone with a loud voice to say, no room, this is us. (laughs) When our kids show up to Thanksgiving in their Star Wars Halloween costumes and they're all ready to perform for our extended families, what my husband titled Star Wars 7.5, The Feast Awakens, this is us. Or when my husband checks me in at the dentist and he thinks it will be a funny joke to check the box that says, I have a fear of dentists before I go in. This is us. <laughs> or when Troy and I pass by our girls' bedroom to find this sign. What's the next slide there. It <clears throat> might be two, Steve. Welcome to Weirdo land. This is us. I like the bottom. Please, noack. Please, noack. <laughs> We're working on spelling. Uh, So reality, this is us, can be sort of funny, sort of comical. It can also be dysfunctional, challenging, and sometimes even heartbreaking. As Dan shared last week, marriage and family can sometimes be just plain hard, especially when we in the church are constantly fighting against these influences of our culture that almost seem to glorify dysfunctional families and marriages. So how do we move toward health? even in our behind-the-scenes reality versions of This Is Us. Is it even possible for us to come to a point in our relationships where we don't have to have these parallel storylines of Facebook and reality? And if it is possible, how do we get there? Well, this morning we're going to dive into the ancient story of Esther, and we're going to pull out five pretty practical principles that we can learn from her about being wives of wisdom and grace. Next week, Troy is going to look with you at the same story from Esther's husband Xerxes' perspective. So, uh, if you are not a wife, I am going to plead with you to not check out on me, okay? Uh, We're going to sort of round this out next week, but I do think that some of these things that I'm going to be sharing with you this morning are principles that can span a lot of different relationships. So, uh, let's pray and then we'll dive into this. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we have this awesome privilege uh, of being able to gather together um, in your name and just this uh, chance to worship you together. Lord, I do pray that as we open your word that you would open our minds and open our hearts and Lord, that you would speak to each one of us. Lord, I pray that we would be changed as a result of coming together this morning and that you would equip us to go out and be the people that you have created us to be. So we give you this time, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible, grab one. Um, If you need a Bible, they're coming around. You can kind of raise your hand, um, and they'll get you one. We're going to be in the book of Esther, um, which I think is page 352, 354. There it is, in those red Bibles. So, and as you do that, I'm going to try to get us sort of into the shoes of this young Jewish girl named Esther. She lived about 2,500 years ago. And as I was preparing this, I tried to think of what some of her this is us statements might have been. So here we go. A Jewish girl living with my cousin in a foreign land. This is us. Taken against my will into the king's palace for his contest for a bride. This is us. Twelve months of beauty treatments for one night with the king. This is us. From orphan Jewish girl to queen of Persia. This is us. Loved by the king, yet left unsummoned by him for 30 days. This is us. And called to risk death in hopes of saving my people from a genocide sanctioned by my husband. This is us. Now, reading through these, it seems almost possible for us to relate to Esther's version of this is us. And yet, I believe there is much we can learn from Esther as wives, because in the midst of this challenging story, this lonely and sometimes almost oppressive marriage, Esther gives us a picture of what it looks like to be wives of wisdom and grace, regardless of the circumstances of our marriages. And the first piece of practical advice that I think we can learn from Esther is to seek counsel with wisdom. Seek counsel with wisdom. Esther was a teenage Jewish girl heading into a Persian castle. Uh, to be either queen or concubine to a king she had never met. So I think it's fair to say that Esther probably didn't really know what she was heading into. Okay, And while hers ended up being a literal cross-cultural marriage, I think those of us in the room who are married can attest to the fact that All marriage is in many respects a cross-cultural experience, right? We're coming together, we have baggage from our past, we come from different upbringings, and we probably have conflicting methods for folding towels and loading the dishwasher, right? (laughs) (sighs) So, but Esther is a wife of grace and wisdom. So what does she do? She seeks counsel with wisdom. After she was put through her 12 months of beauty treatments, she had one night with the king. Just a teensy amount of pressure. This was the night that would determine whether she would either be queen of all Persia or one of the king's concubines. So let's read, Um, we're going to start in chapter 2 of Esther, verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abahel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. I'm going to stop right there. So on this fateful night, Esther's one night with the king, she sought the counsel of Haggai. Okay, now I have no idea. I'm super curious, but I have no idea what that thing was that Esther that Haggai recommended to her that she take in with her when she went to meet the king, and I don't know if it even had any influence on his decision but I do know that it was significant enough that the author of this book decided to write it down. And as the story goes, we know that King Xerxes was smitten with Esther and did not delay after that night in crowning her queen of all Persia. Let's look at another example of this. Uh, Scroll down with me to verse 19 of chapter 2. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate but Esther had kept kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Esther was a woman who sought counsel with wisdom. She sought counsel from Haggai and from Mordecai, and then she heeded it. And wives, actually husbands too, I think we can learn from Esther here. Because we don't really know what we're doing when it comes to marriage. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> I remember when Troy and I were going through uh, just our premarital counseling, we sat down with our mentors at the time, and they asked us to, do, to come up with some goals. And so um, we came to them and we're like, you know what, we really feel like one of our goals is to never fight in front of our kids. We thought it was a good goal. It was probably a little naive. <laughs> we were young. But more than that, like, our mentors were like, no, 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 no. Like, your kids, they're actually going to need to learn how to disagree with other people and still treat them with love and respect. So, like, it's okay for you to have some disagreements with each other in front of your kids. Like, you actually need to sort of train your kids up in that. And we didn't know you know, related to that, what we were doing. There were a lot of things that we didn't know what we were doing. Um, And, you know, in that moment for us, it was sort of like a little light bulb that went off. And um, it's wisdom that we've held on to for 13 years. And Troy and I still seek counsel, um, seek wisdom from mentors today. We believe that having wise mentors in your life, people who will point you to Jesus, people who are for your marriage, For your marriage, not just for you. That's a critical part of it. Um, People who aren't afraid to tell you when you might be living selfishly or when you're maybe being unreasonable. That can reap, like, amazing rewards in your marriages. Esther sought the counsel of Haggai and won the favor of the king. She sought the counsel of Mordecai and ended up in a position to save her people from genocide. So the story of Esther also challenges us to be wives who advocate for their husbands with determination. So let's pick this story up again in chapter 2. I just pulled my marker out of here, so give me a second. (laughs) Uh, We're going to be in Esther chapter 2 again, verse 21. Job, all right. There she is. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the Book of the Annals in the presence of the king." So Esther is now queen, and her cousin Mordecai, while sitting at the king's gate, overhears this plot between two of the king's officers to assassinate him. So Mordecai gives this intel to Esther, and then Esther gets to decide what to do with it. Now, uh, as I read in the text, it doesn't seem like Esther had any hesitation with that. It seems like she took that information and quickly took it to her husband. And maybe there wasn't, but I also think it's possible that Esther might not have been totally against this evil plot, okay? Maybe not for it, but maybe not completely against it either. Remember, she was a young Jewish girl taken from her home and family to be queen to a king that you're going to learn next week was um, a prideful, drunken, sometimes oppressive and absent husband, Okay? He was a king who was ruling over her people without a great deal of wisdom or compassion, and he also had his own personal harem. Okay? Ah. <laughs> Being crowned queen sounds like it might be glamorous, sort of like a dream come true, fairy tale come true, but I doubt very much that it actually was for our Esther. But in the midst of all this, the text makes it seem like Esther's decision was an easy one. Armed with this information about a plot against her husband, she chooses to advocate for him. She advocates for him with determination. Ladies, let's be honest. <clears throat> we aren't always great about advocating for our husbands, are we? I know, you're thinking, well, no one's plotting to kill my husband. <laughs> he doesn't need my advocacy, right? <laughs> Let me ask you this <clears throat> When you're in a situation with another wife and she begins complaining about her husband, do you join in? How about this? When was the last time you complimented your husband to someone else? Or maybe even just shared with your kids a reason that you love and appreciate your husband, their dad. This is a powerful way that we can advocate for our husbands, ladies, simply by speaking words of appreciation of him to others, even if he's not there to hear it. Now, I added on this point that we should advocate with determination, and that's an important part of this um, this point. Here's the deal. Advocating for our husbands is a choice that we have to make even when we don't feel like it, even when they don't deserve to be advocated for. From what I know about Xerxes, he had not earned Esther's advocacy. Yet, in her grace and wisdom as a wife, she determined to give it to him. Now, uh, I do want to make sure that I'm clear here that You know, if you're in a situation where your husband is hurting you or betraying you, you need to go back to that first step of seeking counsel with wisdom, okay? Find a pastor, someone in your small group that you trust. We don't want to advocate for our husbands blindly. But what I'm talking about here are the times in our marriages when we fall out of like with our spouses, (laughs) Well, if you're newly married, you might be sort of like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> Those of us have been married for a while, we're like, we know. Like, sometimes you fall out of like with each other, right? Like, marriage is sort of this roller coaster sometimes of a journey of highs and lows together. Sometimes you don't really like your husband, like when he checks the box that says, I have a fear of dentists, when you go into your hygienist. But it's in those moments, in those times when we're feeling like, I don't even really like this guy, that we need to choose to love. We need to commit to loving. C.S. Lewis has this really great quote um, that we're going to throw up there. Steve, please about this sort of determined love. He says, Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor, or for our sake, I'll say, your spouse. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. I like that. Wives of wisdom and grace are those who advocate with determination for their husbands. Wives who look for the good, look for the growth in their husbands, and then they tell people about it. There's power in our words. Power both to encourage our spouses in their own journeys with Christ and also power to sort of grow affection in our own hearts for them. All right, let's continue with our story. King Xerxes promotes a man named Haman to be his right-hand man, okay? And for various reasons, you'll find out a few more of them next week, but Haman just starts devising this plot to kill off all the Jews who are living in Persia. And so he goes to King Xerxes, and he tells King Xerxes, there is this people in our land, and they are different from us, okay? And they're not really obeying all of your laws, and so I really think we need to wipe them out. He doesn't tell them even who the people the people are. He's just like, "They're not good. We need to get rid of them." And so Xerxes, in what I like to say is his infinite wisdom and thoughtful leadership, because it can be sort of sarcastic sometimes. So Xerxes, as king, gives Haman his signet ring, and he says, "Do with the people as you please," not realizing, of course, that his bride is one of those people.. <clears throat> So uh, Mordecai gets this news. Um, Yeah, actually, before that, I forgot. So they distribute these letters all throughout the land and tell all the people, they order them basically, that on a single day, all of the Jews are to be annihilated. Okay, Women and children, young and old. And so Mordecai gets this news, Esther's cousin, and then he sends a message to Esther and he urges her to go to the king, right? She's the queen. He's the king. He's like, Esther, you got to go. you got to go to the king. You've got to plead with him for the sake of our people. So let's read together how this interaction plays out. Uh, skip over to chapter 4. <clears throat> We're going to start in verse 9. Hathak, he's this messenger, went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Esther once again receives her cousin Mordecai's counsel and then bravely agrees to risk her life for the sake of her people. But before she is willing to approach Xerxes unsummoned, she calls her people to pray and fast with her for three days. Now, help me out here. If you're Esther, uh, whom or what are you praying for? What do you guys think? What's that? Their Their life, yep. Her life, right? She's probably praying for herself. Yeah, yep, praying that the king would have good discernment for sure. I was thinking about it and I thought, you know, Esther, she probably prayed for herself. She probably was praying for her people. Maybe she was even praying for Haman, the sort of the bad guy of the story, that God would somehow change his heart. But I think for sure, Xerxes had to be on the list, right? Her husband. I bet she was praying that he would have wisdom in leadership. I bet she was praying that God would soften his heart. I bet she was praying that he would have mercy, that he would receive her with grace. Maybe, maybe not. I'm speculating. Uh, The text doesn't tell us what Esther was praying for. But we know for sure that Esther committed to these three days of fasting and prayer before she went into the king. She was a woman of prayer. And wives, ladies, we need to be women of prayer too. Wives who pray for our husbands with confidence, even when we don't feel like it, even when we're upset with them, when they have disengaged from us, when we're disappointed in their leadership, we need to be on our knees lifting up our spouses. I have had the privilege of praying um, with many ladies over the years for their husbands and for their marriages, and I've also had the awesome joy of watching God answer a lot of those prayers. Not always in the way that we expect or in the timing that we think is best, uh, but he is faithful and sometimes surprising. Uh, One time I was praying with a friend of mine who was in a rough patch in her marriage, and we were praying for her marriage, praying for her husband, that God would change his heart in certain ways. And as we were praying, like literally as we were praying, God was answering our prayers, but not in the way that we expected, because her husband, as far as we know, in that moment was not being changed. But my friend was. We got done praying, and she said, Steph, she's like, I just realized I'm trying to get from my husband something that only Jesus can give me. And so her whole perspective on the situation and her marriage began to change out of that prayer. Prayer is a powerful thing. And I know that there are some of you um, spouses here today who maybe think that there is no hope for your marriage Maybe you think that your spouse will never change. And if that is your belief, then you are not likely going to be a person of prayer because you've stopped believing that our God is bigger than your spouse's habits, maybe his choices, her past, bigger than the different ways in which you've distanced each other over the years. But just imagine with me for a minute if Esther had given up hope for her husband. If she had come back to Mordecai telling him, look, there is no point. There is no point in going to this guy. He is not going to change. He is not going to help us. He is a hopeless cause. This story would have ended very differently, right? Likely there would not be a story to tell. For sure, not a book of the Bible titled Esther. So if we are going to be wives of wisdom and grace, we must be wives who pray with confidence. Okay, so at the end of the three days of fasting and prayer, Esther puts on her royal robes, and she goes into the inner court of King Xerxes. Now, likely, I would imagine, with a fair amount of fear and trembling, but also I kind of think she probably had this fierce determination and trust in her God. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know what? That is probably how we're actually supposed to live every day of our lives, following Christ. A little afraid, but a whole lot of trust. So, let's uh, see how this plays out here. I'm going to go now to chapter 5 and start in verse 2. When he, King Xerxes, saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So, Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, "'What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request?' even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. All right, so I don't know about all of you, but Esther's approach here to me seems a little bit anticlimactic. Like, there's been all this build up to this moment in time where she approaches the king, you know, it's sort of this dramatic moment that you can imagine where he sees her in the court, and she doesn't know how he's going to respond to her, like her life is on the line. And he extends this gold scepter. I don't know what that might have looked like. But anyway, this gold scepter to her, and she approaches it, she touches it, and then the king, we're thinking like, holy cow, answered prayer. He is like, Esther. What's your request? Up to half the kingdom, it's yours. He's basically saying, like, whatever you want. And I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, like, talk about an inn. You know, you're thinking, like, open door, answered prayer, like, it's go time. So what does Esther ask for? The rescue of her people, the mercy of her king? Nope. Just that he'll come to dinner with her. (laughs) I'm like, all right, okay, Esther. Esther. But then, as if that wasn't odd enough, Esther has has Haman and Xerxes over for dinner. Okay, they're having dinner. And again, King Xerxes asks the same question. Esther, what do you want? Up to half the kingdom. It will be given to you. And then she invites him and Haman to another dinner the next night. And so we're reading this. And, you know, if we stop right there, we're sort of thinking like, Esther, hun, you you're losing sight of the mission. Okay, like you forgot what we're trying to do here. Or, or maybe we're thinking, like, I kind of wonder, is she chickening out every time? You know, does she sort of, like, get these cold feet? Well, as I was reading about this and praying about it, I felt like neither of those options were probably true. From what we know about Esther, I think what happened is that she had learned to communicate with her husband with sensitivity. Sensitivity to God's leading, sensitivity to her circumstances, and sensitivity to her husband. So those of us who are married, we know that there are good times for certain conversations and not so good times for certain conversations. Let me give you a really easy and sort of silly example of this. So uh, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I've been home with my kids for eight years. And over those eight years, playdates have been like a lifeline for me. Okay? Love playdates. Highly recommend them if you're home with your kiddos. (laughs) Um, And so, But the thing about playdates is that you have to sort of learn to converse in the midst of chaos. Okay, so it's not uncommon when you're at a play date with some other moms and usually a lot of other kids for you kind of be having this conversation and all of a sudden a kid comes screaming into the room, so-and-so hit me, you know, and then pretty soon the other one's trailing behind like, she stole my toy, you know, it's drama and so we got to referee that and then there's some other child that's in the other room and they start crying and realize they fell somehow and need a band-aid so you just go sort of take care of that or whatever, you know, and then then sometimes, um, not a lot, don't worry, but one of the moms will sort of be like, um, have you guys seen my kid in a while? <laughs> and then we all sort of start looking around nervously because we think it'd probably be a really bad thing, like if we lost our kids at a play date. Um, and then, you know, typically from what I know about play dates, like Every five minutes, a child is asking us about snack. When is snack? Can I have a snack? What is snack? Are you going to give a snack? <laughs> so conversation at Playdates does not flow. Okay? It's not smooth and uninterrupted. It is actually the exact opposite. Now, why do I tell all of, all of you this? Well, because my husband, <clears throat> I love that man, but he has not learned this art. Okay, he does not know how to converse in the midst of chaos. So there have been countless times in our marriage uh, where he has come home from work. I have dinner going and the radio is on, and usually there's you know a couple kids in the living room who are arguing about something, and another kid who's in the kitchen with us, and they're probably asking us what's for dinner. We tell them, and they're like, "Ew, gross! I'm not eating that." You know, (laughs) and then the youngest is in the bathroom, and he's like, "I need help," and we're kind of doing the "not it," you know, the (laughs) "not it" thing to each other. But anyway, in the midst of all that, I'm usually like, oh, like, tell me about your day. I'm telling him about my day. And then Troy will just sort of stop me. And he'll get this, like, deer-in-the-headlights look. Like, I can't do this right now. He's like, honey, I can't. I can't do this right now. Same reason that he can't have dinner at Buffalo Wild Wings. Like, at least not with other people. <laughs> so anyway, this is that's one of, like, Many examples of how I've learned to communicate with sensitivity with Troy over the years. We've learned about superlatives. We've learned about timing. Um, all these different things that we've learned. And what I've also come to discover over the years is that this is totally something that God will help us with if we're in prayer about it. As I read this story, you know, I thought they're the only possible explanation that I can think of for why Esther would have held off on her request to Xerxes not once but twice is because she was in tune with God, okay, waiting for his timing, for his prompting to communicate this massive request to her husband. So wives of wisdom and grace, we need to learn to communicate with sensitivity. Esther did, and her people were saved. Now, Esther was also a wife who influenced with grace. And I love this story because we sort of watch Esther grow into the woman, into the wife that on this side of the story we know God called her to be. But do you remember when Mordecai first came to Esther and urged her to go to the king? Like, what was her response initially? No, right? <laughs> She's like, let me think. No. She's like, the king has this law, right? Like, He hasn't even wanted to spend a night with me in 30 days. I don't really know where I stand with him. Like, she's insecure. She doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know, like, what influence she might be able to have with her king. She's kind of doubting herself, doubting her role. But she respects and trusts Mordecai. So when he says, perhaps you've been brought to the castle for such a time as this, Esther, in faith, chooses to engage to use whatever tiny amount of influence she thinks she has with the king for the good of her people. And at the second dinner, Esther finally makes her request known to King Xerxes, and he actually, based on the timing of all these different events that come together, he moves swiftly and quickly to try to do his best to honor his request and save her people from genocide. And as the book concludes, we even find Esther continuing to gain the ear of the king petitioning him on behalf of her people. Mordecai's prophecy came true. It seems Esther most certainly was brought to the castle for such a time as this, for such a time to use her influence for good. And ladies, I just want to encourage you this morning that God has you right where you are for such a time as this. He has you right where you are, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your church. For such a time as this, to use your influence for good. You have influence, ladies. Sometimes I think we doubt this. We maybe struggle with insecurity, or we, like Esther, sort of wonder if we have any influence over the people or circumstances in our lives. But I can tell you with certainty that God created you uniquely to be the wife to your husband. He created you uniquely to be the mother to your children. He created you uniquely to be a friend of your coworker or your neighbor. He has you right where you are for such a time as this to use your influence for good. Now, <clears throat> one caveat as I seek to empower you gals, the critical component, I think, to this bit of wisdom Esther was a wife who influenced with grace. With grace. She didn't leverage her royal position and just start sort of throwing her weight around. She respected her husband. And in every instance, whether it was in his throne room or reclining around the dinner table, she acted with grace, she was kind, she was humble, and she was wise. And I would speculate that that respect that she showed to her husband probably was a huge factor in her ability to influence him. Many of you maybe know um, our children's pastor, Kim, uh, and her husband, Jay. They adopted two kids from the Congo about four years ago. And that was right about the time when their four biological kids were getting almost to the ages of self-sufficiency. Now, what you might not know is that they did not come to the conclusion that God was calling their family to adopt at the same time. Kim was on the gas, and Jay was pumping the brakes a little bit. And I can relate to Jay. Jay. Uh, we were just in a situation like that where I was like, uh, honey, let's think this through. You know, like really think this through. And Jay, if any of you know him, he is an amazing leader in his home, in his workplace, and in our church. But there was some hesitancy on his part when it came to adoption, and I think it was because he was trying to lead his family well and with wisdom. But during that time, I witnessed Kim influencing her husband with Grace. She didn't push her agenda on him. She listened to him. She was patient with him. She prayed for him. She prayed for herself, that God would change her own heart if this wasn't what he wanted for their family. And together they searched the scriptures for what Jesus had to say about all this. Kim influenced with grace, not for her own sake, to sort of get what she wanted, but for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of their family. And she would be the first one to tell you that she didn't do it perfectly. Okay, I know I remember a couple of times for sure when Kim had to go to Jay and, and apologize because she was trying to influence him with sarcasm or something else that wasn't grace. But the end of their story is a beautiful thing. When the timing was right, God moved in Jay's heart through a trip, trip to the Congo And they came back, and the very next week, he was filling out adoption paperwork. And watching Jay today with those two amazing kids, I know that he is thankful for his wife's graceful influence on their family. So Queen Esther, I hope, has used her influence 2,500 years after she lived to challenge us to be wives who seek counsel with wisdom, advocate with determination, pray with confidence, communicate with sensitivity, and influence with grace. Now, I do believe that these are five really powerful principles that you could put into place in your marriage, whether you're a wife or a husband, either way. But left on their own, they are nothing more than a self-help book that's going to be collecting dust on your nightstand pretty soon. I can't sit up here and tell you guys that if you do these five things, that you will have a healthy and happy marriage. In fact, you may experience the very opposite, You might try to put some of these principles in place only to find that you are growing farther apart instead of closer together. So, what then? Well, there is another story of a king and his bride that I want to share with you this morning. It's the story of a bride who was blemished, an orphan girl who was unworthy of being brought into the king's castle because of her sin and her brokenness. But the king invited her in anyway. He didn't take her into his castle, but he did invite her into a loving relationship with himself. This king, instead of demanding that his bride go through 12 months of external beauty treatments, welcomed his bride in, just as she was, flawed, but also beautiful in his sight. He promised not to be concerned, actually, with her outward appearance, but instead to look at her heart. This was a king who would never leave his bride unsummoned for 30 days but promised to be with her always. And should his bride ever need to approach the king while he was ruling on his throne, she could do so with confidence, without fear of judgment or indifference or death. This king did not threaten to use his power to kill off a people who were different from him, but gave up his life to save a people who had actually rebelled against him, a people he likes to call his bride. This is the story of course. Of our Jesus, a Jesus who is both our perfect King and our all sufficient husband. So, when you are feeling unloved by your spouse, remember that Christ has lavished his love upon you on the cross. When you're feeling lonely or disconnected from your spouse, remember that Jesus went through hell itself to be near you. When you are feeling like your marriage is beyond repair, Remember that Jesus said that nothing is impossible with God, and then he proved it to be true by rising from the dead. When you're feeling like your spouse doesn't deserve to be loved or served by you, remember that Jesus loved and served you when you were at your worst. When your spouse fails you, remember that Christ never has and he never will. He is the only source of love that will never disappoint us. This is us, Kettlebrook family the bride of Christ, loved, purchased, redeemed, and rescued by our perfect king and our all-sufficient husband. Let's pray. God, we do thank you. We thank you for Jesus, who is our perfect king and our all-sufficient husband. Thank you that he is a king who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. God, thank you that he is our perfect source of love, that even when things are difficult in our marriages, when things are difficult in our friendships, in our relationships with um, extended family or coworkers, God, we can continue to come back to you and know that you will never disappoint. You will never fail us, Lord. So I pray that we would seek you. Pray that um, you would give us wisdom in our relationships, Lord, that we would be able to pull some of these things out of your scriptures. Lord, and God, by the power of your Spirit, that you would empower us to be the spouses, be the people that you have created us to be. So I just pray, Lord, that these truths would go down deep into our hearts, and Lord, that we would be changed. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.